Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. I'm really excited today to be joined by my friend and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. We are continuing the one series uh, doing player reviews. Caitlin, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I'm excited to get into our next episode. I just noticed this morning we only have two more of these left after today. It feels like we're just going straight through them. I know. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. We're already into the second round of the playoffs. We're uh, pretty close to the draft lottery day, like a month and a half from the draft itself. Uh, the off season is kind of chugging along, which is a little bit wild. I have two questions slash comments that I have for you before we get started into the one. One is a quick food thing because it was brought to my attention this morning, and I, ha- I just have to I have to bring it up because I need you to power rank these four breakfast carbs. Are you ready? Oh, well, I'm getting nervous, but I'm glad that you come to me as the ultimate decider of food takes. I mean, oh, you, you are my that's food a lot of respect. Uh, crepes, waffles pancakes, and French toast. Power rank them from top to bottom. I don't know that I've ever had like a really good crepe, but they look, they look quite good. I just have never been to like a place where I'm going to be served a good one. But waffles are tricky because I want my waffles to be sweet, like not sweet because I added syrup to them, like sweet on their own. I don't want them to taste syrup to be honest. See, I don't, I I don't love it either. And this is the point. Like if I have to put syrup on the waffle to make it sweet, I don't, I don't want it. Like I would rather top the waffle with fruit or whatever, but I want the waffle itself to be sweet. So that leads me to lean towards pancakes. Number one, waffles, number two, I think I would like a crepe if it was really good, especially because I could put a bunch of fruit with it. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I'm i not huge on French toast. Now, because I do love Disney World, they have delicious Tonga toast there that has like bananas and caramel and other stuff. But that's literally the only place that you can get that specific recipe. But I would put pancakes number one. I can't abide by that um oh no french toast number one for me by a mile like a country mile like it is so good i love french toast but i not with syrup on it i don't like syrup on anything honestly i put like if no, I'm i have could do french it without toast, it yeah french toast for me is like a little bit of butter and like maybe a small sprinkle of powdered sugar like that's that's how yeah. i like my french toast well then p- peanut butter on all the all the other three um you would put peanut butter on top of a pancake Oh yeah, I've done that before. What is happening? Peanut butter, that, peanut butter and honey is fantastic. It's it's totally it's no. it's doable. It's fine. Um, but then I think waffles are an easy second for me. I'm not a big crepe person. Like I've had crepes and they can be good, but they just feel more like, at least anywhere I've gone, they tend to be a lot more desserty than than anything else. And I really like I enjoy desserts, but I like stuff that's rich. I don't really like things that are super sweet. Um, and they just tend to be like overdone with a lot of syrup and stuff and like filled with cream. And I'm like, yeah, it's not really for me. And they're kind of rubbery too. So I'm not a big fan of that. I'm sure somebody will say you just had a bad crepe. Yeah, probably right. 
Um, I'm going to put them third anyways. Pancakes are just fourth for me because they're like... This is an incorrect take. I, mean, like I think Wonder we're going to have bread. to restart the pod. Wonder Bread. <laughs> it's like Wonder Bread. Like, it's fine. Like, it's just like your base base bread. Like, it's it, it gets the job done. You know, it's it's fine. But yeah, I, just I mean, don't it, I guess they are like, great. I mean, Wonder Bread is not even a good bread. But It's not a good bread. That was um, the only I, thing I could think of. I think that the point that you're making, though, is true. That, like, of those four things, I would just eat a pancake. Like, I don't even need to put anything on a pancake and I could eat it. I don't want to just eat a piece of French toast. And especially because if it's not, if French toast isn't prepared, well, mm -mm, no, well, that's on, that's on the cook. That's not, but that's my point. It can go wrong a lot easier than a pancake or a waffle. And I don't, I think that you have, again, you need to go to Disney world because if you did and you had had a Mickey head waffle dipped in raspberry sauce, you probably wouldn't even be having this conversation. I don't really like fruit sauces. Um, Like I, I don't mind jam, but I, actively despise jelly um but yeah no it's just it just just depends but i could eat french toast on its own without anything on it like it's so good um like one of my favorite things if you uh like i get bougie with my french toast um so i'll put like a little bit of uh of orange zest in so like scrape in some scrape is the wrong way to put it but like zest part of an orange uh into your batter and a little bit of triple sec too. And then it gets you like a really nice tang on it. That's just fantastic. I recommend it highly to everybody. Also has to be the right kind of bread, but uh, enough about that. It is time to talk about basketball. Also remember that French toast should be number one, regardless of what Caitlin says. Um, did you enjoy your uh, your redux version of 0304 Eastern Conference Finals Pacers Pistons last night in the, the Nets Bucks game? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I don't know how you can't decide from that, that the Bucks should feel really good about that. win. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I uh, it, it, it's it's hard to uh, get anything with that for me. Like it was I think uh, the formula of expecting Joe Harris and Durant and Kyrie Irving to shoot that percentage from the field is is highly replicable. Yeah, I would expect that to continue. Oh, and and having with Giannis having a 40 percent usage rate and taking eight threes. Also, another tried and true method. I think that's uh, yeah, Bucks in seven. Um, no, I actually, I do. I hope, I hope for the Bucks. I really want the Bucks to win, but like, I really don't have a dog in this fight. But regardless, it's been a uh, to at least get a close game in the series. I did appreciate that. Very and a much. holiday did a key thing, which really brightened my day. So, shout outs to Drew and his layup at the end of the game. Drew is so fun to watch. Uh, speaking of Drew Holiday. We're going to be talking about another holiday today because in the one series today, we're talking about Justin Holiday, Doug McDermott, and Jeremy Lamb. And Caitlin, for anybody who has not listened to the one, if this is their first time listening, would you like to give us a quick intro? Well, hopefully you didn't turn us off after Mark picked French toast as number one. But <laughs> I actually um, think more people turned on after they found out that French toast was number one. So, well, that's possible. Th- thanks for joining us, extra folk. But um, yeah, so the one is our twist on player review content at the end of the year, and basically we're taking three players at a time. Each of us have split them up. We don't know each other's picks, but we're using one play, one number, and one over under to kind of summarize that player's season or, or look forward to what that player needs to work on or basically whatever angle we choose to take. We're flexible. So first up, Mark has two. So who are we going over first? We're going to start off with Justin Holiday. 
Um, a classic. Yeah, Justin is one of the guys who, whenever you rewatch a game, uh, you just notice little things, especially defensively, that he does um, that kind of go under noticed or under talked about. Like, he's not a guy who I think would ever get all defense credit, but he's a guy in my mind, like, if I were thinking about all defense, like, if there were like a third or fourth all defense team, like, I would think about Justin Holiday because. He provides so much as an off-ball guy, and I think he does so much and is asked about a million. Th- he he is like a uh, he is like the definition of a Swiss Army knife on defense. Even though sometimes he's a very overextended and unfairly overextended Swiss Army knife, but we'll get to that later. Um, my play is from March thirteenth, I guess, against the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, you're picturing Justin Holiday come off the uh, the far side running into a Chicago action with uh, TJ McConnell. And for people who don't know, Chicago action is a pin down into a DHL. Um, Justin gets the ball, pitches it back to TJ. TJ drives to the rim. Uh, Justin intuitively cuts, pulling the tagger. He dives. It's a dive cut, so he goes straight to the rim, pulls the tagger in, uh, freezes. uh, Taylor Horton Tucker is guarding Aaron Holiday. Aaron Holiday lifts. Uh, TJ kicks the ball out. Aaron Holiday gets an open three. Aaron Holiday misses it, but the whole point for me in watching that, and it's a really subtle way of like 90% of what happened in that action is because of what Justin Holiday is doing. Like if, if he doesn't make that cut, it's not a wide open shot. Like um, it wasn't, if uh, it may have, it, honestly, it may have been a scripted cut, but from watching it felt like it was very much an intuitive cut. And just point being like Justin Holiday does so much that, is never going to show up in the box score. And this sounds really reductive way to put it, but it's just true. Like, especially like we mentioned on defense, like just little deflections or playing ball denial on Trey Young extremely well for a game. Just the amount of things that he's asked to do uh, and and does competently and just does well. Um, Justin Holly is one of my favorite players uh, in the NBA because he's just, uh, he's the one guy who I think you can look at and, Kevin Pritchard always talks about that lunch pill hard hat mentality. And that is kind of Justin holiday. Um, so yeah, that is my, that is my play for him. Yeah. I mean, I will say that is a play, but, um, and, and credit, I will give credit to Bjorkren in retrospect. Like that was one aspect that really worked well for them is using that slot guy to dive in and on those situations and then having the guy lift it the whole time. So it manipulates the weak side defense. They use miles in that same role. They've done, stuff with O'Shea, but not everybody is as good at timing the cut on where the penetration's coming yeah. so that you don't spoil the spacing in the lane. And, and you actually have to do it. Um, I mean, you could just stand there and not be doing your role that happened occasionally, but there were space for unscripted cuts too. And, and Justin makes those efforts. I mean, I said it on the last pod, whenever, well, not the last pod, our last two hop pod, I mean, I think he's the the children's book, The Giving Tree. I mean, it's like you come and you ask more and more of him. And eventually by the end of the season, his three-point shooting did hit a bit of a snag, which I think might just have been a product of shooters having up and down rounds. But I also think he got worn down as the season went on. I mean, for me, like if I was picking some of my favorite moments, it's like what you're getting at. A lot of the stuff that Justin does, you're not going to notice, and it's not going to probably be something that readily, you know, gets asked to the coach in a post-game presser or something because you might even need to rewatch it to see how important he was. I mean, in the game they played up in Detroit, he was guarding Jeremy Grant, and 
it wasn't even so much his defense on the shots. It was that he was preventing Jeremy Grant from even getting the ball to get to those spots. And late in the season when they got the win in Cleveland, like it wasn't an inspiring win, but they would not have won that game if Bjorkren, again, to his credit, hadn't made the move to put Justin Holiday on Colin Sexton because they were just getting roasted through the first half. Sexton had 20 and then they made that switch up and that made a difference. And American hero he is. And they were in Houston. When they were in Houston, they were they were fighting over all of the John Wall screens. And then he came in in the fourth quarter and just started ducking under. And suddenly John Wall couldn't score as easily. I mean, imagine that. But um, yeah, so I give a lot of credit. I think Justin Holiday. I don't even really like using this word, but it definitely applies to him. He's a very high IQ player. Like mm-hmm. he's very high IQ on defense and very high IQ in the way that he knows his role. He stays within himself, but he knows how to operate in that. So big Justin Holiday fan. Me as well. All of the Holiday brothers deserve respect and admiration. Actually, I, I don't remember who put it out. I, it's in my tabs to read, but somebody just wrote a story in which they talked to, uh, I, I can't remember their names right now, but uh, the Holiday parents and, and what it's like having three sons make the NBA. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah, they I'll, I'll definitely... Oh, yeah. They showed like a tv segment last night before yeah. the Bucks game, the three. yeah i i'm looking forward to getting into that and I'll, I'll be sure to share it on the timeline but my number is 27.7 and can you guess what that is was that what he shot from three in march <laughs> no um that seems too high in some regards but uh no that is 27.7 percent that's the time spent guarding nba fours and fives according to basketball index and nba tracking data um Somehow that seemed low to me. It was just kind of wild. Like in going back through and looking at the data, he spent 20% or more of his time guarding one through three, 17% guard. I mean, 18, no, it was 19% of his time guarding fours and 8% guarding fives, which is just like that. He was even asked to guard fives at all is wild to me. But um, point being, it, it just highlights the Justin does everything, especially defensively. Like, if you if you need him to chase Duncan Robinson for a series, he's going to do it. It's not always uh, like he's actually pretty incredible as a chase defender, considering um, most of the time, if you're a really lengthy guy, it's not easy to fight through screens, but he's fantastic at doing it. He takes really good angles. If you need him to play somebody at the point of attack, he can do it, even though it's really um, he's asked to do too much. Sometimes, like I, I point back at like, uh, the Denver game last year, like remember when Michael Porter Jr. just absolutely went off. Justin Holiday played as well as you can on him, but it just it's like he's six six one eighty. That it's it's very difficult to make those uh, things happen. Like playing against Charlotte when uh, he's defending PJ Washington and Miles Bridges the entire game. Uh, he just does everything defensively. So yeah, that that is my one number. Which is a good one. I mean, I would imagine that the four might be a little bit lower just because this year he had to start so many games. And when he was starting, a lot of times he was guarding ones, so Brogdon could guard threes. But, I mean, yeah. And some of it might just be a fact of, like, with the fives. I mean, they're, in my opinion, gave up too many switches in some of those situations and put him in some some tough spots. I mean, you could see that even – under the old regime in the in the bubble when they were playing the heat he was having to battle with kelly olenic and was you know 
doing, as you say, like everything that he can be expected. He was trying to make catches tough, but he's given up heft. And I think that's why O'Shea Bursett's going to be really important to this team, because if he can continue to develop and can shoot the three, I don't expect him to probably shoot it quite as well as he did over this sample size. But if he can keep shooting it respectably, then you can move Justin to his more natural spot off the bench. And hopefully he can keep doing all of these great, um, little underrated things that he does at a high level throughout the whole season, because hopefully you can play O'Shea at, at backup four. So. Yeah. As well that, as getting TJ Warren back. <laughs> yes. That will, uh, that will definitely help and make a difference. But um, so for my over under, I have 25 and that is minutes per game next season. Where are you at with that? Because obviously he, he played almost, entirely starter minutes this year things are going to be different next year uh, or at least we're imagining um but he played he averaged 30.3 minutes per game this year which somehow seems to excuse me seems to befall how much he actually played this year um i mean there was a stretch where i think when he was starting he averaged like 35 minutes per game uh was one of the guys who even like you know we always talked about how much Brogdon and Sabonis were playing and there were games where, I mean, Justin is just playing forever. Um, again, not to like, just keep like picking nits, but like he had a stretch at the end of January where he played uh, 36 minutes per game or more in, I think it was seven, seven out of like eight games, which is just, that is asking a lot out of somebody. Uh, and like we've talked about, like we, you see that happen late, later on in the year. That I think that was a big reason for why he had some of that shot fall off. He just was asked to do so much. But uh, to to get back to the over under, where would you go with that one? So you're setting the line at thirty. Uh, twenty five. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd take the over there probably because I think that's what he averaged the season before. And again, there was injuries, but I still see him as a key piece off the bench. And especially if you don't, if depending upon if Doug doesn't come back, you're going to need somebody who can do stuff off of screens. And there's not really other people on the roster. I mean, not that, I mean, Karras and Brogdon can attack off a screen, putting the ball on the floor. But in terms of being somebody who can fly off a screen and shoot, you don't have a lot of other options there on the current roster. So I think he's still going to have a significant minutes role. I mean, my opinion on that might change depending upon who they hire as a coach, but Mm -hmm. I think he's still a key piece. Yeah, no, I totally agree that he's a key piece. I just wonder what his minutes will look like next year. But, um, yeah, I agree. Um, all right. Well, this is a great opportunity to uh, to swing into your player, Jeremy Lamb. Um, we uh, have kept in the tradition of allowing you to pick nits on defense. Um, so with with that, I bid you uh, I bid you adieu as we get started. How'd you know what clip I was going to pick? You spoiled it for our <laughs> listening audience. So, I mean, it, it's not even so much. I did a lot of research on Jeremy last night. I'll just preface it with that. But anyways, we're in Detroit and the lineup is Brogdon, McConnell, McDermott, Sabonis, and Jeremy. So Jeremy is at the four guarding Blake Griffin. And Obviously, Blake Griffin's in a little bit different state than he is now with the Nets. So he's posting and really pounding at Jeremy, backing him down. And to Jeremy's credit, he's holding his spot as best he can. Blake kicks it back out to Jeremy Grant as the post-entry passer. And then Jeremy kicks it to the corner. That guy drives and kicks back to Blake Griffin, who then this is where the problem 
ensues. Blake Griffin's going to run a dribble handoff, and Sabonis is now switched off of somehow off of the center, and he's up here with the guard ready to get the dribble handoff. Sabonis motions for Jeremy to switch so that Sabonis can kick him off of Blake Griffin on the handoff and protect on the keeper. Jeremy doesn't switch off of it, so the shooter gets open and Doug has to rotate over. Luckily, the shot misses, but all of that just kind of summarizes a lot of the problems that went on this year. Mm-hmm. Like Some of that playing combination isn't great, and while I don't think that Jeremy's defense is is all that good – this also just wasn't a fair position to be putting him in. Yeah. Like to be expecting like, and not again, it's not like Blake Griffin was the Blake Griffin. He was a couple years ago, but to be expecting him to be pounding in the post at the four spot just wasn't all that reasonable, but I cheated a bit and it's three clips combined that you'll find in the article. If you want to see it over this like little minute and a half span. So then they're in transition and it's a different lineup. Now Aaron's in instead of Doug and Jeremy just gets absolutely blown by on a transition pick, tries to gamble from behind and there's just feet of space in rear view pursuit. Like there's not going to be any veer contest or side contest even possible. And then McConnell and Brogdon are not taking even a step over to tag the roller and Sabonis is kind of halfway in between because of that. So that again, like the weak side just needs to be shored up, but of course it's starting with the point of attack defense. You can't be gapping somebody that far behind. And then he gets blown by on an isolation. They purposely isolate and he has no hope of containing. So I think when you watch those three clips, that was after the stretch he was starting. I think that was the first game he came back off the bench after starting eight games. And he just doesn't look to me like he's moving that well. Like his defense last year wasn't good. But when you watch the clip of him in isolation, you're going to see it. Like he just doesn't have any hope of moving laterally to, to contain there. So I think that it's a combination of factors. I think that trying to come back from an injury and especially that type of injury is hard. I think it's hard when your coach is tasking you to play up a position while trying to do that, but um, definitely needs to be some improvement in the rear view pursuit category. And I don't know how hopeful I am of that happening because it really wasn't happening prior to the injury last year, either not at this exaggerated of a state, but there we go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so tough with him. Um, because like you're mentioning, I do think the injury had a legitimate impact on his lateral quickness. And I mean, it, that, that makes sense. Knee injuries suck. Um, and it's been a little bit frustrating for me because I do think people have been, and I've certainly been a little bit critical of Jeremy and his defense. Cause there are moments where the effort's just not necessarily there, but I do think you can, I mean, that was, it was not just uh, it was not just beholden to Jeremy Lamb this season, to be completely honest, as we've talked about. Um, but I do think some of the uh, the criticism of him from the fan base has gone a little bit too far. Uh, like I legitimately wonder, like if he was in the same system as last year, do do we maybe think differently or feel differently about how he's playing? Because um, again, this is a lot of it's physical. Um, but also, like you mentioned, the what he's asked to do was just so much this year. And part of it's the roster, but also the, the, just the scheme in general. Does right, because I mean, I didn't even want to pick the clip 
yeah. when he was being asked to guard Giannis in Milwaukee. Or oh God, don't guard, yeah. he had Forgot possessions against he had possessions against Zion and against the Pelicans. Like this is just way over tasking him whether he's at the four or not. Like he's not going to be somebody. Like that's probably the last person that I would have been like, yeah, let's throw Jeremy Lamb for some possessions on Giannis and see. I mean, and then they were having him fight over screens like close to half court. Like that's just easy points, like right yeah. down the lane. And I didn't pick that, but again, that's I don't I don't want to peg all that on Jeremy because it really wasn't fair to be asking him to be doing that anyways. But Yeah, exactly. Um, like I don't mean this on you at all. I just mean in general like right. I do think he brings like we saw when he was healthy what he brought off the bench. He was the really the only guy off the bench who could create his own shot. And that was so valuable. Um, and I think when, when you, when you saw him go out, I mean, that you, you saw how that impacted the bench, like not having that on the bench was difficult. So I do wonder genuinely, like what, um, what things would look like if this season had been a little bit different for him. Um, and I just hope that people like, I mean, he keeps getting lumped in as like the idea of like, oh, the Pacers need to salary dump him this and that. And I'm like, it's not that simple. So um, but I appreciate the, the the clip you're bringing up because that's that's very relevant. But I mean, an interesting point to what you said offensively is I looked this morning and over 60 percent of his shots were jump shots. And he even mentioned in his exit interview that he himself didn't feel like he was moving quite well and he was reliant more on his jump shot and describing his process of, you know, I spent all the time during rehab, sitting in a chair and shooting and then standing and just shooting. And his three-point shot, I mean, he shot over 40% for the first time in his career this year, and that's a small sample size of games. But you could also see improvement. Like last year, he shot 28% on 57 pull-ups. This year, 39% on 43. Both of those are incredibly small sample sizes, but the fact that he was hitting harder threes at a decent clip. I mean, mm -hmm. he shot a lot better in the starting lineup than he did off the bench. But even then, like off the bench, I think he was at like 36%, which would be, you know, right up there with most of his better seasons. So he shot a career high 46% of his shots as threes. So then you got to wonder, which I, I guess I shouldn't say, I don't want to spoil what I have planned later on, but just keep those numbers in mind. But one other thing I did want to bring up in this conversation is I mentioned the McConnell, Aaron McDermott lamb lineup, which was just, you know, that foursome wasn't working. Like I said, it was, it was, I don't even like looking at lineup data anymore because so much of that is impacted by opponent three point percentage. But in this case, when those four were on the floor, it was a net negative with Goga. It was a net negative with Sabonis and it was a net negative with miles. So um, but do you want to guess how many minutes that four group man grouping played the season prior under Nate McMillan? Uh, can you state the four again? Jeremy Lamb, TJ McConnell, Doug McDermott, Aaron Holiday. I'm going to say less than 20 minutes together. One minute. They played one minute. Oh, wow. That... Yeah. So this year they played over 100 before that finally got like, okay, this just isn't working. And before they started using Edmund. And when, and when it was Edmund – or uh, I want to say there was some minutes with Brogdon, like in this case, it wasn't near as bad of a grouping. So there's one thing to consider. It was either Edmund or Brogdon in place of Aaron. But um, And another little piece of data is when Lamb was out there with the starters, like pick anybody at the three, but Brogdon, Turner, and Sabonis, which as we know, was the main starting lineup the year prior before Victor came back this year, they were minus 32 and just 153 minutes, which again, this is a ridiculous sample size of minutes to barely be talking about, but I wanted to look 
And last year, the starters were plus that grouping was of four was plus 20 and 423 minutes. But 355 of those were played with TJ Warren when they were out there. And when Warren was off the court, it was almost identical to this year, minus 33 and 69. So I think that kind of hypes up some of the TJ Warren's pretty important <laughs> looking at those comparables because it wasn't working as so much as a four man with the starters with Lamb there this year, but it also wasn't necessarily last year, except for the fact that you had TJ Warren available. But yeah. Um, my one number after spitting out all of those lots of numbers is 388. Do you want to take a guess at that? 388. Is that minutes played? That is the number of minutes, according to PBP stats, that he played with only one of Miles, Jakar, Sabonis, Goga, or Justin, meaning that he was acting as nominal four. So 388 minutes played out of 765, that's 50% of his minutes were played at that position. Or that position. So again, I wanted to give greater context to all of this, that that's something that he was being asked to do. And 388, compare that to for the season, Keelan Martin played 322 minutes. I don't know how many Jakar played, and I'm not saying that either one of them would have been like a silver bullet to fix things before O'Shea was available to sop up some of those four minutes. But there was just times like in this particular case or like the ones we mentioned earlier with Zion or with Giannis or whoever it is that like it just felt like there was a better option there. And even like I'm not saying remove Jeremy Lamb from the rotation, but don't use him in that way yeah. and I think sometimes some of it might have stemmed from they wanted to still find ways for Aaron to get minutes as well like or like I don't think they wanted to completely abandon finding ways for Aaron to play earlier in the season around the time when this was happening so it was like well we'll Jeremy Lamb's back from injury so we'll shift him to the four so Aaron can still play otherwise there wouldn't have been a spot like it would have been McDermott I mean McConnell and and Jeremy at the one and the two off the bench. So I think some of that might have come into play with it. I mean, they I'm sure the tilt towards offense was a big contributing factor and why they got him out there too. But I just wanted to point out that he played a large chunk of his minutes at the four. And I know we've talked about that ad nauseum, but I think Jeremy deserves that piece of context. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a great point to bring up. And Again, it's just the the context for this year is so so murky. Um, it, it, yeah, I I agree. I think that's a really great point to bring up. So the over under I have then is thirty eight, which is his three point percentage. So do you think he can hit that back up? I mean, like I said, he said that he really worked on his shot last year while he was rehabbing. He shot. on 3.6 attempts per game this year. But prior to this year, his highest mark would have been 2017-18 in Charlotte when he shot 37%. The prior year here in Indiana, he was at 33. I mean, it's yo-yoed his entire career. Like one year, it'll be a little bit in the mid-30s. Then sometimes it's in the low 20s. Then it's 37. And this year, though, it showed improvement. Like I said, when I went on my little bit of a grandstand about how he had hit pull up threes at a different mark and most of his shots were threes if he can come back and maintain that that's really going to open up the other part of his game that was already you know fully fleshed I think like his Mm -hmm. ability like you're saying to get to his spots be able to hit those teardrops like if he's hitting the three and people are respecting him out there more the rest of his game comes becomes a little bit easier yeah I think 
I'm going to take the over, um, which I know is probably risky, but A, I really hope it happens for him, but also B, I thought his shot looked better this year. Um, like he was, it, it just seemed like he was more comfortable taking it. It felt like he quickened his release a little bit. Um, I may be wrong in that. I have to go back and watch through again, but I just remember him watching it felt like that. And it just looked cleaner overall. I know that the numbers dropped a little bit as the year went, went on. Um, but he was also dealing with knee yeah, soreness and other things. So. Exactly. But I, I, th- I mean, I think so. Cause he also just had his best free throw shooting year. Yeah. Uh, insane. In 71 of 75. He missed four free throws. The That's pretty year. good. It's not yeah. exactly Tony Snell, but it's pretty good. So like, it, it just legitimately felt like his form was even better. So I think uh, I, I'm going to be comfortable in taking it over. And I really hope it, it does uh, work for him because that's a hu- huge for his game. Yeah, I want to be optimistic just because of what he indicated of what his process was and that he said that he wants to continue working on it and that he's going to put effort in over the summer to maintain that aspect of his game. So I I want to be positive and go ahead and look at that. But just to wrap him up, you know, we don't know what's happening with McConnell or Doug, but like, let's just imagine for a minute that that Doug gets a big offer somewhere else and and he doesn't return. And you have TJ, obviously penciled in, and one of the bench spots. I think that Justin, you can pen, pencil in at one of the bench spots. And like what we said before, I think, I think playing O'Shea is going to help Justin. So, if you have McConnell, Justin, and O'Shea, are you going to play Jeremy Lamb over Edmund Sumner? No. And this is where the piece comes in. This is why I said, like, I kind of understand where fans are coming from with some of like, I'm not saying that you just salary dump him and pretend that he doesn't hold value. Cause I think that he does. Like I didn't even mention in this spot that the one game they played against the Raptors when Sabonis didn't play Nick nurse countered at halftime, went to three, two zone with OG on up top and the Pacers could not score. And that was the game where Nate Bjorkren had like his epic ref meltdown rant and the Pacers got like 31 free throws after over the back end of the game but like Jeremy Lamb was their answer against zone like his ability to get in to the paint nobody else was doing anything against it he was he started drawing free throws and that kind of kept them alive in that game and there was other times where I thought you know against the heat with some of the defense they had he didn't play in the third matchup and a couple people were getting scared out of taking floaters I was like if Jeremy was here that was somebody they could look at. So I don't want to pretend like he doesn't have value or that Mm. that would just be like a dump, but I do understand the thought process behind consolidating the rotation and that he might be the natural person because he doesn't offer you defensively what Edmund does. Yeah, definitely not. And he doesn't bring the same driving as well either, but he, he does. Yeah. That's a good point. Also one of my favorite things about him this season uh, coming off of a massive knee injury, he had the highest free throw rate of his career. Um, by like a, a decent margin, uh, which I thought was kind of impressive and also out of nowhere too. Like, um, and it also just felt in general, like he was, he, I wouldn't necessarily say he was going out of his way to seek contact, but he did a really good job of drawing fouls. Um, and that was just another aspect that really helped him on the bench this year. Yeah. And I mean, that was even early on. I mean, like I said, yeah. that was in the Raptors game when he had those attempts, but I mean, one of those very early games when he came back, I think he had like eight. So, I mean, it was offensively, like, I don't think he was moving well, super well defensively and his ability to get to his spots. I agree with his own assessment that he feels like he still has progress to make there. And he was relying more on his jump shot. In a lot of cases, he had his highest three point attempt rate as well, but um, speaks really well of him. Just how, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't the same as what you saw from Victor's injury. Like Victor didn't look 
the same pretty much whenever he returned. I mean, I think we can all agree about that in several yeah. aspects. Like he didn't look the same, but, and Jeremy's game was never based on explosion and burst. So it's not directly comparable, but it was like, Oh, there's Jeremy. Like you would have just been like, Oh, he just hasn't played for a year. And there he is. But um, yeah. So I think we can wrap him up and move on to Doug. Definitely. All right. So with Doug McDermott, my play is from January 7th against the Houston Rockets, but more importantly, it's just a play that we saw a ton this year. Um, as a preface, I would say um, Doug is one of the more improved players in the NBA in some facets of his game. That wasn't like a, a guy on his rookie skill contract, I should say, but like it, it just didn't get, it got a little bit overlooked this year. Um, and this encapsulates that that improvement. And so he comes up again, I'm bringing up another Chicago action. Um Doug is coming up on the far side uh, without the, obviously without the ball off of a pin down into a DHO with, with Domas. Um, Justin holiday curls back and uh, back screens, James Harden. It's not a great screen though. So James Harden fights through Doug is stuck at the top of the key, but Doug immediately passes the ball back to Domas head fakes. James Harden drives to the rim. Domas hits him with a touch pass and he has, a quick lane uh, through contact, um, which that was just like something that we saw all year this year. That was not something we were used to seeing. That was a total change up in his game, the driving and and finding new ways to get to the rim instead of, you know, cutting out some of the pull-up twos that he was taking last year. Um, just finding more ways to be efficient and, 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 and cut to the rim was, was an awesome part of his game. Um, it felt like part of that was the scheme, but also a lot of it too was just his own decision making to get there more. Right. I think like three comments on that is that exactly like, and again, to give Nate Bjorker and some credit, you know, there were spots that were going to make it easier for Doug to leverage drives with the angles that they like, you know, setting the double stagger where you're going from a wide to more the angle on the floor where you'd set a middle allowed him to really accelerate and get to the top of that hairpin, you know, turn and be able to put the ball on the floor. And that was good for him. I mean, I, it's funny how many of his actions, you can just trace the line from the left corner up to the top of the key, whether it's what you're describing here, whether it's in a dribble handoff and he's doing it or whether he's just flying off of screens, it's always from the left corner up to the top to get to his right. And I think that speaks to his overall chemistry with Sabonis too. I mean, Mm -hmm. Sabonis runs so many DHOs on the left side of the floor. Doug likes to fly off and go to his right. It helps them fit together, but also what you're saying um, there aren't a lot of players like you can run. And I don't mean this in any way to demean all of the wonderful things about Justin, but there's some of these plays that you can run that you're just not going to get the same thing. They both can come off a screen and shoot, but not everybody makes the reads that Doug McDermott makes. And like, even, I think you can see this, this is, I don't want people to take this way out of context, but you can even see this sometimes when you watch the nuggets right now. Um, Clearly, Michael Porter Jr. is a tremendous talent, great at tough shot making. Doug McDermott isn't that, but there are Mm -hmm. times where the Nuggets are running screening actions for him, and it comes off as him being passive because he doesn't know what reads to make or how to keep himself actively involved in those plays. And you could see that contrast with when the Pacers played Phoenix and what reads Doug was able to make. And you know, the get action you're describing there with Sabonis. I don't think there's two other players on this roster that you're going to, you're going to run that set with. I looked up successfully and be able to get through multiple things because that's a counter. I mean, you're running Chicago. It doesn't work. It gets blown up and then you're going into the get and, and 
finagling the angle of the pass and Doug's making that read. But um, so Sabonis to Doug was the leading assist combo on the team with 110 assists. And here's the interesting one. Like Doug has his career year and does a lot more putting the ball on the floor. You look at his three point percentage wasn't as good as it's been in the past, but off of the threes that he attempted from passes from Sabonis, he shot 42%. The rest of the team, when they passed him, he shot 36%, which be would be the equivalent of his worst mark since his like little 22 game stint when he played for the Thunder. So like, you can just see like, and not all of that, like sometimes you're, you have no control. Like assists can be a finicky stat. You have no control. You just swing the ball and a guy makes a three. It's not your fault if he misses the three, it's still a fine pass. But I think that it, we would be remiss if we pretended like their wavelength, like, yes, you movement shooters, you can find spot up shooters, you can find, but I don't think you can just automatically replace the chemistry that they've built together. Cause I mean, you can even look at their, um, playoff numbers and Doug against the heat and the bubble when Sabonis didn't play was two of 10 from three. And some of that had to do with Miami and the switching and the ISOing and that he was getting more standstill shots, but he also only got 10 attempts and that playing game against Charlotte. I'm not going to pretend to you that Charlotte is near the caliber of the team that Miami was in the bubble, but Doug is seven of 13 from three and had more makes in that one first quarter than he did in the playoffs. And Sabonis assisted four of his nine made or four of nine on his threes. So I guess my long winded thing here with describing this is that uh, my guess is Doug's probably going to get a hefty offer, but um, I don't think that you'll just be automatically be able to get internal replacement for the things that he did, even though like his defense and some of the other stuff's troublesome. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, He was so important this year. And one of my favorite stats too, this isn't my number, but um, in the last 14 games, so he misses one game uh, in April, and then he comes back. And I, of course, lose the stat right as soon as I'm pulling it up. One second, it's back. In the last 14 games, this is, of course, excluding play-in, uh, 58% from the field, 42% from three, 80% from, from the free throw line, 16 points per game. Like, he was on an absolute tear. Um, he did struggle with his three for much of the year. But once it really got going for him, he was just so good. Um, and like you're mentioning, I just think uh, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, you don't want to pay a role player, but he's not just a role player to this team. Like he is a role player in in context, of course. But um, what he brought was like, I mean, arguably that, that Sabonis McDermott two-man action was sometimes the only thing going in a game. Uh, and you had to keep going back to it because it, it did work and they had that chemistry together. And you're so right. Cause that is not something that's easy to replace. Like you can't just expect to replace that internally or, or, or by assigning somebody else to a lower deal. Right. I mean, the other point of it was, is that for so much of the season, when carrot around the time when Karras and TJ are both out, you only have Brogdon is basically this team's only option for self-created threes. Like I, I go back to the game they played against the Lakers at uh, when Brogdon, I think, threw the ball out of bounds. There was a turnover on the key play when they needed a three. So at the time, they're starting Doug, Justin, Miles, Sabonis, and Brogdon. And amongst the four people, Brogdon was the inbounder. There's Those four people have combined for seven unassisted threes, and Sabonis has made two of them. So uh, – to tie a bow on what I'm trying to get at here is that if you took Brogdon out, like 
the Pacers would have been dead last in pull-up threes before Karras came on. So when they're trying to counter drop coverages, if you're like the Utah Jazz, they're going to counter drop by having Donovan Mitchell shoot pull-up threes. Or, you know, the Pacers just didn't have options to counter it that way. And a lot of teams aren't going to come out to Sabonis or Miles shooting threes. They're just going to live with that. So this is where Doug comes in. You can run a handoff, get him coming and flying, and he can shoot those threes to counter that. And now you can do obviously a little bit more because you have Karras in the lineup and he's good at, at creating his own offense. But um, that's just why I think Doug's uh, important to what this team's doing. I don't know what the overall future is going to be, but yeah, I don't think that all shooters should be categorized as the same because there's a pretty big difference between you know, standing at the three-point line in one spot and being able to hit an open shot and being able to do that in addition to whether he's making the shots or not, his overall movement and his ability to scurry back door, because, I mean, that's a whole nother piece of it with Doug and Sabonis is that you can run, you know, corner flares where he can slip and go to the basket, and those are basically free points. I mean, you're getting wide-open cuts right at the rim, so we'll see about his future, but did I, what was your number? Did you say your number? Yeah. Well, here's my number. And it okay. is 39.7, uh, which is the percentage of his field goals that he took from zero to three feet uh, yeah. in, uh, in this season, which was his highest mark since his rookie year, but also his rookie year, he didn't play a ton. So it's a little finicky, but yeah, I mean, that's just going hand in hand with, with the play. That was what really changed up his game from this year. And he became more of like a two-level scorer instead of somebody who you're just thinking of as taking threes. Um, and yeah, and a fun was... Easter egg, a fun Easter egg that I always enjoy was the very few rare occasions when if teams really started to scheme up on his right, when Bjorken would flip it and uh, Doug would actually have to come off and put the ball on, his, on the floor with his left. Like it was such a rare um Easter egg to ever see them do that. But yeah, I mean, he really developed being able to put the ball on the floor, as you say, and some of that's coming off of cuts too, but good season for Doug. Definitely. So oh, my question, my question. Oh yeah. I, I had to think long and hard about what I wanted this. Would you rather to be, I hope that you feel the pressure of being at the NBA combine and being able oh, wait, to wait. I didn't get to, I didn't get to give my over. Oh, under yet. oh, oh my I'm gosh. sorry. I'm no, sorry. I thought we were in bonus content. <laughs> My over under is uh, is zero, which is an easy one. Uh, do you think Doug McDermott plays more than zero games for the Pacers next year? I've told you before, the line has to be 0. 0.5. If I okay, picking... well, it's close. Okay, 0. 0.5. The line is 0. 0.5. I don't. This is, this is why I don't do bets. All right, Caitlin, I would be very bad at betting. Um, but so yeah, we 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 moved the line to 0. 0.5. We are goalpost goal shifting mid pod. Um, Line at 0.5 for Doug McDermott games as a pacer next year. Well, like I said, I think I hope that the front office has some sort of an idea about whether they're two feet in on both bigs, which, you know, great if you think that the new coach is going to be able to make that work or which big they're leaning towards, because I still tend to think that if you're leaning towards the bonus, that Doug is an important piece. Yeah. I don't know how much money he's going to come in at, but I don't think you just replicate that with anybody. But I guess I'll take the under just because I just foresee him getting a big offer, at least the mid-level. Yeah, yeah, I'm taking the under as well. Um, I hope that he's back because he's so important to what the team does. Um, and I think it'd just be hard to replace him. But I agree. I, I think he's going to get paid quite a lot this summer. Um, I'd be pretty surprised if he isn't. 
so yes, now we can flow into uh, to your would you rather. I'm I'm excited to hear what you've got. We're gonna have time. to edit out my ridiculous interruption. Oh, where I couldn't even schedule the podcast or follow our own outline. But okay, so I hope you that you feel the pressure of the combine and and reflecting your critical thinking skills here because there's to be honest, there's not a lot of critical thinking. I just felt that now that we're in the post Nate era of both Nates, I would allow you to choose. And I think this will say a lot about you as well as what the overall outlook of the team moving forward is. Which would you rather watch? The bubble offense versus Miami in the playoffs or the defense this season versus the Wizards? So basically you're making a choice between Nate McMillan's offense versus Miami, which at times could lack in ideas, or Nate Bjorkren's defense versus the Wizards, which at the time was just way too many conflicting ideas. Oh, man. Um, well, I think my snarky comment would be that they both would have had to have it, uh, existed in some facet to actually watch them again because there was no offense against Miami. There was no defense against Washington. Um, I think, okay, so here, here's my way of looking at it. I think I would rather watch the defense against Washington because that was all vibes, no effort. Um, and the uh, – when you're looking back at the game against the games against Miami, that was all effort, no vibes, just terrible. Like watching Malcolm isolate onto Bam Adebayo time and time again, knowing what was going to happen in the end. Um, I think it, it, I could at least watch the the Washington games because I'd know uh, that it's, it's not like constantly beating your head into the wall. It's actually from not beating your head into the wall at all in some regards. Uh which is maybe an unfair way to point point it out, but um, I think that's how I would deduce it. I just think I, at least I know that the offense will be good um, ish against Washington. I don't even think the offense was that good. It was just more like Washington's defense was bad, but um, I think that's how I would lean uh, because the, the Miami games were maddening just like knowing what was coming. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Washington defense. See, I think that they were both tortured in their own individual and specific ways because I have to admit that by the time the play-in tournament came, game rolled around, when it was at halftime, I was just so over it. Like somebody that was uh, texting me during it was asking me questions about what the Pacers were doing, who I've known for a long time that covers basketball. Like it, it was hard for both of us to continue watching those two teams at that point because I was just so frustrated and in the third game, like the third game that I wrote the article about the junk defenses on was where I felt like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can continue watching this. Like, and I don't think that I felt that way with basketball very often that, you know, they come out and you could just tell that guys did were not on the same page. And yes, the effort was there, but I question if the two of those things went hand in hand. Like, I mean, you could see it when I broke down all the clips of those triangle and two and box and one, like they were just frustrated. I think at times not knowing you could tell that it was so underbaked that they didn't know what the roles within it were. They were switching it so many times and and you're playing all these unfamiliar lineups and it was just like, why? I just had so many questions this year about like, why is that necessarily a thing? And, you know, you can watch last night, the Clippers pull out a two, three zone against Utah and it, it did bother them, but they looked so much more in control of setting that and Utah did a good job of countering it. And no surprise by the end, they did a good job of countering it because they have good shooters, but 
I mean, that was the idea of what this was supposed to be, that you're, you know, throwing a little bit of a curve where the other team has to think for a bit about what they're going to do. And it just never came into fruition. And I think that the too many ideas, like, from my perspective, I could watch the offense against Miami and I could find reasons for why it was happening. Yeah. Like, yes, Nate McMillan probably could have done better to scheme for things that you could do that weren't just hunting mismatches. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, they're flooding the strong side against TJ Warren and bam is either you're going to isolate against him or he's going to roam off the person that he is defending and be clogging these driving lanes. And for most of the season last year, Brogdon and Sabonis were good in isolation. Their numbers were good against switches. So I'm not sure that Nate McMillan probably thought headed into the bubble, like, oh, I need to have all of this prepared because he likely assumed that they were going to be available and then they weren't. So I could kind of understand why it looked like it was, even though it was frustrating to continue watching it. But this, it's like, I couldn't understand why it was. I couldn't understand, especially when once Miles Turner went down, like, why is this a thing that's still continuing to happen when it's clear they don't have a grasp of what the coverage is? So like in general, I think like if just the question was, Hey, do you think it's better to not have many ideas or to have too many? I would generally lean towards, well, I I would want somebody who at least can come up with an idea. But in this case, like I would, I would lean towards watching all four bubble games again before having to watch that defense, which I think brings us to the point that uh, as we enter into the new, new Nate era, I think that it's going to be really important that even if the head coach isn't a defensive minded coach that they need to find some assistant who's really going to be able to uh, figure out ways that this team can more competently defend, even when they are all healthy. And even if the roster stays the same way than what we were seeing last year, but that's where I lean. I lean towards watching more of the bubble offense. I guess I see that. That's, that's fair. Um, but I do see your point too, that at least you can just sit back and watch team score, I guess, and just like laugh it off maybe, but it is, it gets to a point though, where you're doing just like that. Uh, have you ever seen, I don't know what movie it's from, but that like gif of Willem Dafoe, like laughing, like a, like he's a deranged person. Um, that's how it would feel after, if you had to watch that defense play like 10 or 11 times in a row, I feel like Mm -hmm. so. Maybe I would change my answer, but I'm, I'm going to go with it. I'll stick to my guns. That That's how I'm going to close out. I do appreciate the question. That was a good question. Conflict is better. I mean, I don't think everyone would probably like listening to this pod if we just agreed with each other throughout the entire thing. So. That's a really good point. Well, Caitlin, do you have uh, do you have anything coming up or anything exciting you want people to know about before we get out of here? Any closing remarks? No, other than next up, I think on our list of scheduling is we have O'Shea, Jakar, and Keelan. So that's what people can look forward to next Tuesday. And then dun, dun, dun. After that's the finale and we get to talk about the centers. Hooray. (laughs) Ooh, can't wait for that one. That's going to be great. Um, Well, Caitlin, thank you. This was a good time as always to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to rate and review this thing. Uh, Share it with your friends, family, anyone who, uh, who you think could, could learn more about the Pacers uh, ask them if they want to, if they'd rather watch this year's defense or last year's offense against Miami. Um, it's, it's a very good question. And I think we need more answers for it. If I remember correctly, I put a poll up on the last question and it was Roy Hibbert falling by a pretty wide margin. So, um, 
I'll, I'll put a poll up for this one again too and see uh, see what we get at. But Caitlin, I'll talk to you again. Everyone else, have a good rest of your day.